This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13, and I will be reading the entire chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and blessed in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as we come to your word today, by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts to receive it, that it would be effectual in us, and that in it we would know who you are, know what you have done, know how you have revealed yourself to us, and that we would live lives in light of this reality. 
that we would love you and honor you, that we would know the redemption we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you make big decisions? What criteria do you use? I'm not talking about the minor day-to-day stuff like what you're going to have for lunch or what clothes you're going to wear, how you're going to do your hair. I hear that's an issue for some people. (laughs) But I mean the big stuff. Where you live, how you live, your career, who you marry, the things that necessarily will alter the course of your life. There are lots of ways and lots of reasons to make certain decisions. When I was in high school, like most high schools, we had a guidance counselor, and his job was to basically try to get people towards the right path in life, towards college or employment, or some would join the military, or whatever was to come after school. So maybe he would guide you to go to this college, or major in this field, apply for these scholarships. After all, most of our society today tends to orient these decisions economically. Basically, how can you make the most money? How can you build the most wealth? Others, though, might make these decisions relationally, based on relationships with other people. You might decide, well, I want to live close to certain family members. Or maybe I want to live further away from certain family members. I want to marry a certain person or at least a certain kind of person. I want to raise my kids in a certain kind of place. Maybe other decisions are made more emotionally. I want to live in the mountains because they're beautiful. I want to live by the ocean because I love the ocean. I want to live in a place with nice weather. Clearly none of us here have chosen that path. Now, all of these things matter. You need to make a living. You need to care for your family. You need to care for the other people in your life. And so you want to make big decisions carefully and for good reasons. And all these lists of reasons I've set forth here, they're fairly common. And we've probably wrestled with them all in various ways at various times. But you might have noticed something was missing from these lists I just gave. And I think it's one of the criteria that sadly a lot of people leave out. What about what God thinks about my life and the decisions I make? We will see in our text today the next stage of the story of Abram, the man who was chosen by God to be the bearer of his covenant blessings. We see a time of transition, a time of movement and resettling that comes after the debacle in Egypt where Abram committed treachery against his wife and against the king. Now, despite this, despite Abram's sin and failure in the previous chapter, God has still blessed him, allowing him to escape Egypt not only with his life and his wife, but with many material blessings. And that is what brings us to our text today. In chapter 13 of Genesis, we see Abram making his next move, and we also see in this Lot's next move. We see two men who make very different decisions and are put on very different trajectories because of how they answer the sort of questions that I just asked. 
So we will look at this text today in four points. First, progress in verses one through four. We get a report of what state Abram is in and those with him as they emerge from the episode in Egypt. Second, we will see problems in verses 5 through 9. Abram and Lot and those with them have thus far dwelt together, but this causes some difficulties that have to be faced. Third, priorities in verses 10 through 13. Abram and Lot will be forced to separate. But the criteria that each man follows and the way they separate is very significant. It sets up not just the immediate future, but how the rest of their lives and the lives of other people are going to go. Fourth, promises in verses 14 through 18. After Lot leaves, Abram is visited once again by the Lord, who continues to add to his blessings of Abram. So again, we have progress, problems, priorities, and promises. So first we will look at progress in verses 1 through 4. I mentioned last time in the episode in Egypt that though Abram committed a wicked and fearful and cowardly act, God still used it in his providence to bless Abram, to add to his material possessions and wealth. He got animals, he got gold and silver and people, all this that goes with it. And so in this section of the text, we get something of a progress report. Where are they at? How are things going as Abram and his camp emerge from Egypt? We see that they, that being Abram and his wife and Lot and everyone with them, they return to the land of Canaan. Now, as one might expect, coming to Canaan from Egypt, they come in from the south. There's other translations called what the Negev, the southern part of the land of Canaan. Now they would have crossed the northern part of the Arabian desert on relatively the same journey that Moses and the children of Israel will take centuries later. Of course, it will take them an extra 40 years because of their rebellion against God. But in addition to an accounting of this travel, we see a brief accounting of Abram's property. We see that in verse 2, he has emerged from Egypt as a man of wealth. He was already probably doing pretty well for himself before. He came out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he had animals and servants and the sort of things that would require some means to support. But in Egypt, he became very wealthy. When Pharaoh was falsely under the impression that Abram was his future brother-in-law, he had given Abram animals and money and property. Now, despite the finding out of Abram's treachery, Abram was allowed to keep all of this. So Abram is now rich. He has lots of livestock and lots of money. Though he had initially came into Canaan as a pilgrim and a sojourner and a wanderer, God has provided for his needs and more. And this will be important in what comes later in this chapter. Then we also get this record of Abram's travel. He essentially goes back to where he first started in the land of Canaan. That is the altar that he had built near Bethel and Ai. Now this shows us where Abram's priorities lie, which again will be important to what unfolds in the rest of this chapter. When Abram returns to Canaan, he not only wants to go to a place that is suitable for his life and his work, but is suitable for the worship of God. 
And so he goes back where he had already been and already built an altar for that purpose. And when he gets there, he calls on the name of the Lord. First thing that we see recorded when he gets where he's going, he worships God. He prioritizes his living and other choices so that he can worship God and live before his face. Now note that when Abram calls upon the name of the Lord in Bethel, it's the all caps Lord in most of English Bible translations. That means he calls on Yahweh. He calls on the true God. Not the gods of the Egyptians. Not the gods of the Canaanites. He calls on his God, the one true God. Abram has oriented his life around being where he can worship and serve God. But sadly, not everyone in this story is going to make the same choices. We will return to that a little later. But after our first point, progress, we come to our second point, the problem that comes in verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, we are also told that Lot, who has been with Abram through this time, has his own flocks and herds and tents. He too has done well for himself. He has accumulated some wealth and property. Now the problem this creates is that Abram and Lot and those with them, they're nomads. They don't have their own land. So the more animals and people and property they accumulate, the harder time they're going to have living off the land as wanderers, basically relying on what's naturally present in the land. Now remember, Israel and the surrounding area can be kind of desert-like. It's rather dry. And Abram and Lot, they're also coming off of this famine that had driven them into Egypt in the first place. And so concerns over things like water and grass, they would be real and they would be fresh. And so we read in verse 6 that this predictable problem becomes an actual problem. The land is not adequate to support this entire growing community. And we read that there is further trouble. We read in verse 7 that there is strife, there is conflict, there is fighting between Abram's workers and Lot's workers. Now this was strife over legitimate concerns. There's only so much grass, only so much water to go around. And so they have to figure out who's going to get what when resources are strained. What we also see here emerging is a potential security problem. We're told at the end of verse 7 that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So not only are Abram and Lot's camps now fighting with each other, but there is a potential of rivalry and invasion and attack from outside, from the other peoples in the land. There's this very large nomadic target that is draining a lot of their resources, and eventually the surrounding peoples are going to notice. In fact, it will be in the very next chapter that warfare does break out in the land between the various tribes of the Canaanites, and Abram and Lot will be caught up in it in their own ways. So this is a very tense situation, and there's a lot of legitimate concerns at stake. So Abram and Lot have a talk. They have a meeting, starting in verse 8. And we see that Abram, the older and wiser of the two, initiates. He tells Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. In other words, Abram regards Lot as a brother, and he wants peace between them and between their people. 
He's not interested in trying to one-up Lot or cheat Lot or give him any kind of bad deal. He loves Lot, he cares about Lot, and he wants Lot to have good things. And he wants this situation to be resolved peacefully. And this is demonstrated in what he does next. Recognizing that they cannot stay together because of the size and need of their camps, Abram gives Lot the first choice of where in the land he wants to dwell. Basically, we can't stay together, but you pick what you think is best, and I'll take the rest. So in this, we see, despite the rather pitiful display by Abram in Egypt in the previous chapter, Abram is growing in his trust in the Lord. Whereas Abram had made a very poor decision based on very material concerns, here he is being more deferential. He's letting Lot have the best of things and trusting God to provide for him. Now, Abram was older than Lot. He was probably wealthier than Lot, for it was Abram that got the gifts from the Egyptians. The text indicates that Abram was a man of great wealth, whereas Lot is merely described as having some flocks and herds and tents. So Abram would have had more to be concerned about. He would have had more people and resources and such at his disposal. And he could have pulled rank on Lot if he wanted, but he doesn't. He trusts in the Lord to provide for him, and so he worries not for himself, but for Lot's good. So Lot has been given the first choice. He's been given this great advantage by Abram. Well, how does he use it? This brings us to our next point. After the progress and the problem, we come to our third point, priorities, which we see in verses 10 through 13. So left to choose the way that he would go and which part of the land he would inhabit, how and why does Lot make the choice that he does? We see that Lot surveys the land and he notices the plain of the Jordan, so the land near the Jordan River. Now, because it is near the river, we read it is a land that was well watered. So if one is a man of livestock, having access to a good and reliable water supply, as well as the grass that it will help to grow, is quite important. Now, we also see a note here that places this account in historical context. We read that this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah an event well known to the Israelites to whom Moses would have been writing here, but it shows that that hasn't happened yet. In fact, what happens here begins the progression in the book of Genesis towards the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, for all pragmatic and worldly reasons, Lot has made a very good choice. The description of this land is excellent. It's said to be like the garden of the Lord. It's so good it... It calls to mind the Garden of Eden and all its bounty. It was a land that would set Lot and his family up for material and economic success. The problem is that it was a land that would set them up for spiritual poverty. As we see down in verse 13 that it was already known that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Lot made a pragmatic and economic decision that seemed to completely leave God and his will out. Lot turns toward a land overrun with wickedness and evil. 
And this will one day bring him and his family to ruin. At the beginning, I talked about the reasons that people make large decisions. And sadly, these reasons often do exclude God's will and worship. I've sadly known children who go off to college and Though they were raised as Christians, they may go to a school that's hostile to God. Almost all of the schools are now, including many that claim to be Christian. They don't do any investigation beforehand to make sure they'll have a good church or Christian friends or Christian fellowship and a good grounding, a good basis to face the challenges ahead where everyone is going to be trying to shipwreck their faith. I went through some of this when I was younger. When I enrolled at my first college, I wasn't really thinking about things like this. Thankfully, God was looking out for me better than I was. The first handful of people I met in college, they were all Christians. They belonged to churches and campus ministries. They weren't Reformed. I didn't start to become Reformed until a few years later. But at least they kept me in church and hearing the word in a time of my life where I might have otherwise been prone to wander. But making these kinds of decisions indifferent to God's will is not just a problem in college. I know many adults who deal with issues like this. When Heidi and I lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming, we knew lots of people in the military from the local Air Force base. Now, the problem with being in the military is you don't really get to pick where you go. They tell you where to go, and that's where you have to be. And we know people that would be stationed in other places And they would have trouble finding good churches, finding Christian fellowship. But others do have a choice and still separate themselves from these things. I knew people who took new jobs in other places but didn't even stop to think, is there a church there I can join? Is living in this place and working in this job going to be good for my faith and for that of my family? People too often see dollar signs or other considerations and they don't think about the things of God when they make these big life choices. I've known some that even take the forbidden step of marrying outside the faith. You know, one of the biggest life choices we can make. Being from Wyoming, we had lots of Mormons there. Now, Mormonism in many ways seems to be a dying religion. It's in chaos and it's sliding into liberalism. One of the ways they still get converts, and really the only reason I've ever seen anyone who was a professing Christian become a Mormon, is so they can marry a Mormon. Again, making the big life choices indifferent to God's will and worship. I've mentioned before a concept called moralistic therapeutic deism. The most popular religion in America, according to studies, The belief that God exists, but that he's not all that involved in our lives, and we are essentially left to go our own way and do what we want. We only ever think of God or need God when trouble comes. And if we're just good enough people, God will save us in the end. And as I've said before, talking about moralistic therapeutic deism, if we live like God isn't there, there may come a time where we find it to be true. And that is the tragic and terrible choice that Lot has made. Though Lot himself is a man of faith, the New Testament regards him as a righteous man and a man of faith. This time he has chosen pragmatism over piety. 
Wealth over worship. Worldliness over the word. It will eventually cost him his family. It will cost him his future. All the things that he thinks he is gaining by making this choice will be lost to him. Lot is a warning to those of us who as Christians think that we will be able to overcome the poles and pressures of the world in hostile places. To those of us who put human categories and consideration above God's when we make our choices. There is only ruin if we follow our ways and not his. So that's Lot. But what about Abram? Well, this brings us to our final point. After the progress and the problems and the priorities, we come to promises in verses 14 through 18. So Lot separates from Abram and he goes and takes the plain of the Jordan, the the best of the best land for himself. Now, it might be at this point that Abram would have some doubts. After all this has happened, he might ask, did I really do the right thing here? Lot's taken the best of the land. I have more people and property and kind of left out here to fend for myself. But it is right after this separation that God appears to Abram to provide reassurance. And we see this starting in verse 14. Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. See, Lot might have won the day, but this land, all of it, as far as anyone can see, belongs to Abram and his children. God has made this promise to Abram and will keep it certainly. Now, not only is the land promised, but God restates his promise to Abram of descendants. He says, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Have you ever tried to count dust? Count how many many specks, how many particles of dust? Maybe you dust your house like we did this week because we had company coming and it's all going everywhere and yeah, you ever try to count that stuff? You, you can't. It's Even just if you did one room of your house, you've got billions of particles. Impossible to even see, much less count. Well, Abram will have the land, and that is what is used to describe how many descendants he's going to have. I went into detail with this a few weeks ago, but just by reminder, this is about something way bigger than the land of Israel and Abram's physical and biological descendants. Even today, the Jewish people all around the world, they can still be numbered. There's roughly 24 million of them all over the world. It's a big number, but you can still count it. No, these promises are ultimately fulfilled in Christ and in the church. See, Christ's people cannot be counted. It consists of all Jews and Gentiles alike who belong to Christ, who are united to him by faith throughout all of the history of the world. And the land is the whole earth. This is not something we can just reduce to Israel. No, the promise is the promise that points to Jesus Christ and his redeeming work. and the Spirit's work in building a church of every tribe, tongue, and nation to dwell in God's safety and to worship Him. Abram's children are the people of Abram's God. 
Abram would only begin to see a sliver of this in his lifetime. He was a sojourner. He would have some kids and grandkids that he would live to see. But he would own no land of his own except a plot to bury his wife. But this promise is pointing to greater, more glorious realities to come. It is pointing to Christ and it is pointing to the church. And it is with confidence in these promises that Abram can dwell in the land, even not getting the best of it. He can walk in all of it, depth and breadth of it, and know that God will give it to him and his descendants. We see that Abram believes this promise and receives it by faith. He ends up moving again to Hebron. will be a very important place in the historical events to come. But we see when he gets there, he does as he has done before. He builds an altar to the Lord. He worships the Lord. That is his priority. He receives this word of grace, these promises from God, and he responds in obedience and in gratitude and in worship. Though Lot got the best land that day, Abram has something far better. So as we come to the end of this passage today, It calls us to reflection, and it puts the question before us. We have seen in this separation of Abram and Lot essentially two ways of living, two approaches to life in this world for the people of God. There is a way of pragmatism, a way of making human choices and doing human things and worldly things and in worldly ways and expecting or hoping or maybe not even considering at all what God will think of it. This is the way of moralistic therapeutic deism, keeping God at arm's length, letting everything else dictate where and why and how we live. That's not the only option. There is the way of faith, the way of Abram, the way of being a child of Abram, the way that trusts in God, even if it means settling for less in this world And in this life, the way that worships God in spirit and in truth and prioritizes living before the face of God and living among his people. It is the way that hopes in Christ, the way that recognizes that salvation belongs to Christ alone, that we can only be made righteous by his perfect life and his atoning death. That is the way of Abram and that is the way of faith. So which way will you go today? To the life that holds God at arm's length and lets everything else decide how your life's going to be? Or will you worship God in the splendor of His holiness? Will you worship Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us, fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf, suffering the cursed death of the cross that we deserved? Because it is only in Christ the true life And true help and true hope can be found. Not in our own hands, not on our own efforts, not in anything that this world has to offer us. So may we all love and trust and follow and serve Christ and Christ alone today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. And as we see these two ways set before us, these two men who show us two ways of life, 
the way of the world or the way of faith. I pray that we would all, as your people, be ever inspired and moved in by your Holy Spirit to walk the walk of faith, that we would honor you and serve you in all that we do, in all that we choose in our lives, that we would orient our lives around you and your will and your worship. I pray that all that we do would bring honor and glory to your name and that we would be salt and light to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.